From the Wilk Center for Climate Science and Policy at the University of Utah, I'm Ross Chambliss, and we're talking climate. What does it take for large communities, like whole cities, to take actions necessary to adapt to a changing climate? What is required for millions of people who live in the same metropolis to agree to certain changes to become resilient to climate change-driven natural disasters? These are the questions that Malcolm Aros has been asking. Malcolm Aros is a Wilkes Center postdoctoral student in the Department of Sociology. Previously, Malcolm, who is originally from Canada, was a PhD student in sociology at New York University, where he researched the process for how the city of New York began changing its infrastructure to become more resilient to sea level rise and future hurricanes in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, which caused mass flooding and destruction in 2012. As a postdoctoral student now at the University of Utah, Malcolm Aros has turned his attention to the Great Salt Lake, and he's just beginning to examine how millions of Utahns living on the Wasatch Front are dealing with the problems of dust, air pollution, and a shrinking Great Salt Lake. So here's my conversation with Malcolm Aros, and as always, you can see a full transcript of our conversation, along with links and photos of his work, on our webpage for this podcast, that's wilkscenter.utah.edu slash pod, P-O-D. Malcolm, thanks so much for being here uh, to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've, I've been really looking forward to this conversation um, and specifically just about, because I've been very interested in sort of the sociology of, of climate change yes. and, and really, um, you know, specifically sort of how governments and communities are responding or are taking action or not taking action, I guess, um, and and sort of like how that is sort of orienting people uh, in their everyday lives around making these adjustments. So yeah, yeah excited to learn more. Um, the first question I really wanted to ask is about your background in examining uh, the East River Park experience with New York City yes. um, after Hurricane Sandy and sort of like, you know, you spent a lot of time, I understand, re- researching this topic for your dissertation, and just curious what lessons were learned. Like, so what, what, what did you learn about the value of involving the community in that process? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, I think sociologists have lots of different roles that they can play in this bigger climate change issue. There's a lot of sociologists studying um, decarbonization, so trying to remove carbon, uh, reduce carbon emissions to kind of slow or stop climate change. Other people, my focus is more on adaptation. So how uh, human societies respond to climate change impacts that are already happening. And my specific focus is on the social challenges of getting these policies uh, done. So how these initiatives, how governments plan these initiatives and how they're playing out and how the public responds to these initiatives. And so for my dissertation, I studied this one specific uh, project, adaptation project, which is maybe the biggest, most expensive adaptation project in the world right now, which is the project to protect lower Manhattan from the impacts of sea level rise and storm surge. And this uh, started being planned after in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And this was an experiment. Uh, it was a policy experiment that at first was uh, the idea was to have this very, very participatory kind of democratic uh, planning process to plan this project. And this project essentially would be uh, a wall around lower Manhattan 
And the initial idea was to have it as a park. So it would be not just a seawall that would protect uh, lower Manhattan from uh, having the ocean come into the city, but also it would be kind of this public amenity for people. Uh, and another part of this, this, the notion behind the project was that it would be, again, very democratic and very participatory. So I was really interested, you know, being interested, like I said, in how these projects play out. I was really interested in um, documenting this potentially successful example of democratic planning uh, for climate change uh, adaptation, which, you know, in the literature and just common sense, you know, it makes sense that we would want people to be involved in the planning of these initiatives, right? The people that these projects are going to affect. And, uh, you know, I spent a few months studying this process. And then after a while, the city decided to totally change the project into these, this project that, you know, they called more technically sound, um, but that was very different from the participatory democratic process uh, and the, the public consensus plan um, that the public and the government had arrived at. And there was tons of anger about this, right? Um, there was a huge response. There was protests, there were lawsuits, um, people yelling at each other in all these community meetings uh, because the, the project was no longer uh, democratic. Mm. So I started pondering this idea of you know, and I reached some conclusions after lots of lots of research. There's lots of other details of what happened in that case. But, it, you know, this idea of how democratic can planning for these projects, uh, how democratic can these projects possibly be? You know, they have to combine the technical expertise of climate scientists and engineers and architects and landscape architects and designers with um, public input, right? So that so these projects can be legitimate. So I started pondering these questions. and I think there's no kind of right answer, but I think this will be a challenge that other cities will have to face. Um, how democratic can these projects be? Wow, yeah. And do you, do you, would you say that the, the East River Park example with New York City was an example of sort of what not to do uh, for a successful large-scale adaptation process? Uh, I mean, it seems like the city sort of moved the goalposts, right? And, and they almost started one process and then kind of bulldozed later through meaningful meaningful public involvement yes totally it's a, the process uh unfolded in a really messy way and the city did not do uh the best that they possibly could have but again this is a kind of an experimental project and as cities start to grapple with these issues they're gonna run into these problems right because they don't have experience doing these these projects before and so uh yes it's kind of an example of what not to do um, to create this, you know, the illusion of this participatory process and then change uh, the government changing their mind and doing whatever they want to do and try to push this project through, that's going to create resistance and lawsuits. But again, uh, there's this deeper question of can these large-scale complex projects ever be 100% democratic or 100% led by public input? Uh, and I think we need more experimentation on that to find that out. Mm. Public input and kind of democratic planning is important uh, for to gain legitimacy, right? To, again, to avoid having these this resistance, this public resistance. Uh, but at the same time, the, the public input can't have expertise on every aspect of the planning project, right? On the planning process, so you still need the, the input from engineers and climate scientists. And so the challenge, I think, for these cities, and I think cities should take it really seriously, is how could we potentially mix these two aspects, right? The technical expertise on the democratic participation. And I think it's not really clear yet how that's going to pan out. Yeah, and 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 sort of sort of like what you're describing these sort of competing philosophies over whether the it should be sort of the educated 
planners and engineers who are the ones who ultimately decide how the city is going to grow and adapt versus uh, their ordinary residents who sort of live and every day and, and they're on the street level and 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 ultimately should it be them who decide what their city is, city is going to become. Um, and, uh, and so it seems like it's, it's a balancing act. Is that going to have to be how, I mean, is that it or I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of the question. Yeah, huh? it is a balancing act for sure. Like I said, again, it's, uh, you know, sociologists are really bad at proposing solutions and really good at identifying what the problems are and explaining them. So I think I identify this as a, as a big challenge that cities are going to have to face in the future. Right. And it's not just in the realm of climate change and climate adaptation. We saw that with the coronavirus pandemic, right? This like tension between expertise and like public knowledge and what uh, other forms of knowledge look like and how that clashed with like technical knowledge and expert knowledge. And uh, we can think that, uh, you know, we can say that the people on the ground who have this alternate knowledge are, are wrong, but that doesn't really help solve the problem of you still need some kind of mutual understanding uh, to avoid this public resistance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, like I said, I think cities should continue experimenting with um, using public input and participatory governance methods, but also maybe they could be more transparent about, hey, listen, we're going to run into some barriers of just using public input to create this plan, and we're going to have to combine that with the knowledge from engineers uh, and and climate scientists. So we're going to have, yeah, we're going to have some limits, and we're going to have some kind of back and forth interaction. I think that's another. Um, way that this could pan out is iterative planning processes where maybe uh, public input, you know, people come to a meeting and say, this is what we want the project to be like. And then you have engineers say, okay, how can we work with this? And then go back to the public and say, we can do this, but we can't do this other part Hmm. and so on. Yeah. Oh, and and it, it does seem like a very extremely challenging process for policymakers to go through, right? Um, but but seemingly very necessary to make sure that you, they don't get ahead of the the where the public is and and to bring them along on the journey. Otherwise, there there isn't going to be buy-in, right? Down yeah, the road. yeah, there isn't going to be buy-in. I want to just identify also another problem is that the when we talk about community input or public input, there's not a single community voice, right? And there's not a single uh, public voice. And so another really important part of the story that I found out in the Lower East Side of Manhattan when I was studying the East River Park was that you had these two uh, community groups responding in very different ways. So New York City is a very segregated place by kind of race and by class. Um, and what I found, you know, during Hurricane Sandy, a big, uh, the Lower East Side has a, a ton of, uh, really high concentration of public housing, right? So um, working class people living in, in subsidized housing, and they were really affected by the flooding. And over time, you know, we've been talking about this public resistance to this project, you know, protests and lawsuits, uh, there was a split in the community and the people uh, who had been really affected by Hurricane Sandy, the flooding and public housing ended up supporting this plan um, and saying, you know, it's not perfect that the city, you know, quote unquote, betrayed us and they changed the plan. But still, we want this plan to go ahead because we want, you know, quote, like, you know I can quote from a tenant leader, you know, we want protection for the 20,000 people living in public housing in, in Lower East Side. And you have this other group uh, that remain kind of vehement in their opposition to the plan. And uh, they ended up kind of leading the protests against this plan. Mm-hmm. And people started seeing this conflict in both like cl- class and race, race-based race ways, right? So people living in public housing tended to be, and people who spoke for them tended to be, uh, you know, the tenant leaders tended to be women of color, 
working class women of color. And the people who opposed the plan tended to be kind of older, whiter folks. Um, you know, in the Lower East Side also is a very kind of artistic community. Mm-hmm. Tend to be poets and directors. Um, these are the people who kind of uh, composed the group opposing, opposing the project. So you had these kind of really bitter than community fights. Um, so then the city, then and other cities in the future will have to kind of deal with these problems. You know, not every neighborhood is, has the mm-hmm. same composition as the, as the Lower East Side, but this problem that we saw exemplifies that there's also no single community voice. Um, so cities also have to try to deal with that. Yeah. Well, it, it does seem that the, the issue of social equity is going to be a factor in any community, especially dealing with these large-scale uh, adaptation projects going forward. Um, and I, I guess there might be other examples, but sort of what, what, were, you, what were your main takeaways as far as um, why social equity is really important to consider um, when, in, when going through this process and, and sort of what might be uh, better practices, better ways to go about it <laughs> in yeah, dealing with that? Great question. I mean, this is a really basic question of what social scientists call climate justice, right? So overall in the world, the people who bear the brunt of climate change impacts are the people least responsible um, for putting those emissions in the atmosphere, right? On a global level, wealthy nations are the, the countries that put the most carbon emissions in the atmosphere, but the countries you know, having the hardest impacts are countries like Bangladesh, uh, Kenya, you know, poor countries in general. But this also works at the local level. Um, you know, the people even most responsible for, uh, you know, consumption, for flying, for buying, you know, you know, eating a lot of meat, buying high, high emission uh, electronics like laptops and stuff like that. Uh, they, those are the people that are most that are best positioned to protect themselves from climate impacts. Right. Um, and the people who can protect themselves least are people that don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of, uh, you know, social networks to rely on in terms in, in times of disaster, don't have a lot of money to bounce back after disasters. And so it's a basic climate justice issue to prioritize the most vulnerable groups, the most vulnerable areas of a city, of a nation uh, first, right? So like that investment should happen there first. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, it, it does seem that when, when it comes to coastal cities, really, by, by not having or even completely sort of avoiding this, these transitions, um, that a lot of cities are sort of setting themselves up for uh chaotic sort of cataclysmic uh adaptation or or evacuations down the road uh, you know in whereas you know new york city for all its um difficulty in trying to roll this out at least they're showing they're kind of perhaps leading the way as far as u.s cities in showing how this process can can take place and and hopefully giving us um lessons to learn right and maybe yeah. that's another way of looking at it yeah, for sure. Lessons to learn and things uh, and problems that cities that haven't gotten started maybe might face down the future, right? So New York City is an ideal place for progress to happen. They have, you know, leadership that takes this issue very seriously. They had a disaster that uh, people are responding to, that governments at various levels, federal government, city government, are spending billions of dollars to respond and to rebuild after Hurricane Sandy in a more resilient way. You have public opinion that's supportive. You have many universities in the region that you know have created very specific tailored science for New York City, what the impacts are going to be in, in New York City. So you'd imagine that 
all the conditions are excellent for New York City to make progress on, on, the, on these projects, more than in other places where, where those conditions might not be in place. Um, but even then, we still run into these other problems of like this social conflict, right? So like the, this public resistance to plans and just really deep disagreement about how the, these planning processes for adaptation should take place, really different visions of the future for their neighborhoods, what people want their neighborhoods to look like under you know, climate change conditions and how to adapt it, uh, to, these, to, these, to these new threats. So yes, it, you know, the takeaways I think there are even in places where the conditions are ideal, and so in other places you know, down the line when we get to build these projects, it's useful to know this information about these other social conflicts that could arise in order to kind of get ahead of them as well. Yeah. Well, so I, I do want to pivot to where you are now as far as your, your research focus. Um, uh, so you, you finished your doctor, your PhD at NYU. Now you're in Utah yes. doing your postdoctoral research, uh, specifically on, on the Great Salt Lake, yes. um, and which is obviously very uh, a, a, a big issue here in this community. Um, and I understand now you're just in the early stages of your research, and so I don't really want to ask too much about, you know, because obviously... You know, you don't probably don't have many findings yet, but I'm just curious to ask about um, sort of like what what research questions are you framing and and going about asking on this specific topic now? Yeah, so I'm I'm taking basically the the same a, a similar approach to what I did in New York City and and the same sensibility to study the social challenges of responding to complex environmental threats and thinking about this Great Salt Lake in those terms. So what I'm the questions the research questions that I'm interested in here in Utah, you know I think we're all familiar maybe with the basic kind of Great Salt Lake situation that there's uh, the water levels are kind of the lowest that they've been in recorded history. Um, I want to interview lots of different people belonging to different types of groups, right? So policymakers, politicians, uh, activists, so people working with non-governmental organizations, scientists. Uh, people working in, in private sectors such as agriculture or mining or even the brine ship industry around the Great Salt Lake and asking them, how do you see this problem? How do you understand this problem? How do you understand the roots of this problem? You know, just get people to describe to me the shape of the issue as they understand it uh, and then compare that across these different groups. So depending on what kind of groups these people belong to, maybe they understand the issue in really different ways. And then asking the question of solutions, like how do you see the future of the Great Salt Lake? How do you see you know, the future of just life in the region in general, the, you know, the Wasatch Front? There's not just environmental stresses here, there's also you know, affordability crises and, and housing shortage crises. So how do people see life in this region in the future in general? And I think my goal is, is again, to understand you know, my thesis is that making progress on this issue is going to require everyone to work together in some way and to understand where other groups are coming from, you know. So there might be a lot of disagreement, but I think it's important to document and map out kind of where everyone is on this issue. And then, then that's a good way to start uh, working toward solving the problem. And in my view, the Great Salt Lake and this problem of water scarcity stands in also for the future of the American West more generally. Um, the whole American West has problems re regarding water and not having enough water. And I think that the case of you know, Great Salt Lake and, and this general urban region um, could be an example of lessons that we could learn 
for just this part of the country more generally? Yeah, absolutely. I <clears throat> a couple thoughts on that. I, I I mean, it's certainly one of the obvious differences I, between New York City is just sort of we're not a coastal city here, right? Very far from the ocean. Um, but so different challenges, I guess, as far as trying to get a community to to adapt. Uh, in this case, to to a lake that's drying up, um, and uh, you know, so so potentially various other sort of health uh, related challenges that we might be facing down the road. But but another aspect of it is that, you know, you know, Utah is a conservative state. And, and I think when it comes to climate change policy, things tend to be slowly evolving here. And we do see a lot of incrementalism in, in policymaking on this in this space. And I, I guess a question I, I have in for you is, it, and maybe the question generally is just is incrementalism progress in a way? Is it the best we can do? <laughs> and, you know, I, these are questions to ask, I suppose. Yeah, good question. I mean, that's kind of a subjective question. I think uh, to make big change on this issue, you maybe need what people call transformative adaptation, right? So instead of uh, even these infrastructure projects that protect people from the impacts of climate change, there are deeper drivers of vulnerability uh, in the region, right? So people here talk about water law and the way that water is, is apportioned to different actors. Uh, that is a much deeper um, source of, of problems of water scarcity in this part of the country than, um, you know, another solution could be just water conservation in this, in this area. Like that maybe is like a more surface level solution and a more incremental solution as you might call it than changing water laws, right? But there's this also this, there's a kind of, uh, Pragmatism is boring, right? But there's a there's a, a limit to how much you can do in certain contexts, giving certain limitations, right? So we can talk and understand what deeper solutions might be needed, and and kind of deeper structural changes might be needed. Um, but like you say, in a place like Utah, those might not necessarily be feasible, right? So it might be worthwhile identifying them, but then uh, working toward a solution, I think you really have to take into account what is possible and what, what do people want, right? And I think that's part of my approach to understanding what other groups, what all the groups involve, uh, how they understand the problem is that, like I said, they might really disagree with each other, um, but it's really my thesis and really I believe this is true, that you need some understanding and some consensus and some kind of deliberation across these different groups that maybe don't think the same way, maybe they don't understand the problem in the same way, they don't see the solutions in the same way. And that's kind of the, the incremental part of just whatever happens is gonna have to uh, get, we need buy-in from kind of all the different actors to, to, get, to get something done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very interesting research. I know that there will be a lot of people here who be really interested in whatever sort of results you find. Um, and, and perhaps we can follow up a few months down the road and, and see what, what you've been learning Definitely. On, on this, on this yeah. topic and, and your research. Um, and, and just kind of wanted to, uh, um, before we, before we uh, end, uh, I just, I want to ask, you know, so now that you're more of a, a personal side question, so now that, you know, you're, you, now that you're in Utah, I sort of, what are, what are you finding enjoyable? Uh, what are you discovering about life here in the state? Um, you know, what do you do when you're not doing research? I love nature. I love cycling. Uh, I did that in New York City even, but that involves just going around Central Park dozens of times. 
But here, there's many more opportunities to, to do different things, going up and down the canyons. Just got a mountain bike, trying to get into skiing. So definitely trying to take advantage of that, uh, of, of those things. Uh, yeah, and that's, I've been loving that. Great. Well, Malcolm Aros, uh, thank you so much. Thank you.